you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who weren't here at the beginning of the gathering, I'm Cole. I'm one of the pastors, um, and it's really good to be with you this morning as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, which is... Uh, the, the Sunday in the year where we remember and rejoice in the fact that God has poured his Holy Spirit upon his church. And so uh, typically uh, on this Sunday, we're, we're in Acts chapter 2, um, seeing the, the historical moment when that happened. But, but I wanted to be in John uh, 14 this morning for reasons that will, will become clear. Uh, but let's pray and, and hope that that's actually true, that they actually become clear, that God will do that. I won't do that. Um, so let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we come to you and we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that in it uh, we have real, tangible truth and a solid foundation upon which we can build our lives and our understanding of who we are and who you are and, and the world around us. We thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf and that he has given his spirit to us, the helper, the spirit of truth, would you allow that spirit to help us as we look in your word this morning, as we apply it to our lives, would the movement of the spirit in our lives be obvious as we become more like you day by day, hour by hour, would you transform the affections of our hearts? and the orientation of our lives to be in line with you and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, John 14, 15 has been a verse in the Bible that's haunted me uh, since the first time I remember reading it. Uh, I think it's maybe the biggest gut check verse in the entire New Testament when Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is a gut check because um, at least I have found in my life that keeping the commandments of God is very hard. Um, I, I'm sure most of you in this room have tried or, or maybe are still trying to obey God and the things he's commanded. But it's difficult. It's difficult to keep the commandments. And yet Jesus tells us that our love for him is displayed and proved in our keeping of the things he's commanded us to do. And so, so that leads me to this question that I, I wrestle with myself. Does that mean that when I fail to obey God, that I don't love him? Is every sin I commit a proclamation that I do not, in fact, love Jesus, though I say I do, though I claim to, is it just untrue? Because if it, if it is, then, then that's depressing, right? That's a, a difficult reality. I mean, who, who could maintain love for God if that is the requirement? And yet, the answer to that question is, is when I sin, is that a proclamation that I don't love God? The uncomfortable answer that the Bible gives us is actually kind of yes. But it isn't that simple. 
Christ has commanded us to do lots of things. For instance, to pray, to be honest, to love others, to be generous, to be forgiving, to be sexually pure. He's called us to be generous toward the needy, to worship God alone and and no other gods or things before him. He's called us to all the moral commandments given to Israel in the Old Testament, namely the Ten Commandments. These are the commands of Christ to us, and to obey them is to actively love Christ. And our love for Christ is what motivates our keeping these commandments. It's like when we obey Christ, it's because we love him, and because we love him, we desire to obey him. But what we need to understand this morning is that there's a difference between keeping the commandments of God as a lifelong pursuit and keeping the commandments of God in every single moment. You can certainly say that you love Christ, even if in a moment you tell a lie. Your love for Christ in that moment of dishonesty is not a working principle for you. Jesus isn't the primary affection of your heart in the moment when you tell a lie, because sinful lies are are inherently selfish. They're inherently self-preserving. They're not acts of love. And so it can't be that you are actively loving Christ in your dishonesty, but it doesn't mean that you don't fundamentally love Christ. To understand this, consider a person that you dearly love, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a best friend. You've likely acted selfishly and in direct opposition to your love for them at one point or another in that relationship, right? And that doesn't mean that you don't actually love them. What marriage would survive if love was called into question with every moment of selfishness and sin? The answer is zero marriages, right? If, if Anna didn't believe I loved her because every moment that, that I fail in our marriage just prove that I don't, then, then our, our marriage would be on quite rocky ground. Paul gets at this point in Romans chapter 7, um, which is uh, one of the most pastorally helpful passages in the Bible for those of us humans who struggle with sin because Paul is debating himself about his struggle with sin and, and he's having this argument with himself about why do I do the things I, I don't want to do? Why is it that, that I, I love God, I, I love his law, but I just I keep doing the things I, I don't want to do? He fails to love God even though he loves God. And, and Paul certainly loves God. It's evident in his life. It's evident in his writing. It's evident in the historical accounts of, of who he was. And Paul, as a general lifestyle, kept the commandments of Jesus. Yet that didn't mean he was perfect. It didn't mean that at every moment he kept the commandments of Jesus. And so what I'm getting at is that I, I believe there's a real righteousness to be had in our lives without feeling as though we must be perfect. We can truly keep Jesus' commands and be substantively righteous, even if we are not substantively perfect. Right? That's really good news, church. But the question is, how? How can we do that? And that is where the gift of Pentecost comes in. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes in. So for those of you who don't know what Pentecost is, I alluded to it earlier, but it refers to this historical moment after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back into heaven when, when he poured out his Holy Spirit on the disciples of Jesus who were waiting for it. 
And, and when this happened, it allowed the disciples of Jesus to be meaningfully and mystically united to Christ forever. It empowered them to do the work that God had given them to do, namely to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so Pentecost is the fullness of the beginning of the new creation, this idea that we've been talking about a lot lately. It's the fulfillment of things promised for ages to the people of God about this mighty day of the Lord when he would put his spirit in his people and write the law on their hearts and bind them to him forever like a bride. So Pentecost is the historical moment in which the redemption that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection became redemption which was applied to his people. The Spirit of God, which raised Christ from the dead and to whom Christ is united, has come to unite the people of God to Christ forever. And so the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus marked the end of history as we know it. And Pentecost is the first day of the rest of eternity. That's how it's described in the Bible. But when we think of Pentecost, um, at least for those of you who grew up in the church, you likely think of the gift of the Holy Spirit in terms of miraculous things and and the spiritual gifts, things like speaking in strange tongues and prophesying and and healing miracles and and things like that, things that are are just totally miraculous and and awe-inspiring. But the most important thing about Pentecost is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the unifier between the people of God and God himself in Jesus Christ. And so Pentecost isn't primarily about miracles. It's not primarily about experience. It's primarily about God's people being united to him forever. Don't get me wrong. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see lots of miraculous stuff going on, right? There was There was really exciting stuff. I mean, at at the moment when the Spirit came down, it was flaming tongues came from from heaven and it settled on the people of God, the disciples, and they all started speaking languages they didn't know how to speak previously to people who they couldn't communicate to previously so that they could proclaim the truth of God to them. I mean, days later, the the apostles are healing sick people. Paul raises a, a, a dead guy. Like, all kinds of miraculous stuff is taking place. But at the center, at the center of the day of Pentecost is is this sermon given by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. And and he's preaching to these crowds in Jerusalem, almost exclusively Jews who who had come to Jerusalem for festival. And his message wasn't primarily about receiving the Holy Spirit so that you can have the power to perform miracles. It wasn't primarily about receiving the Holy Spirit so you can have this this great personal spiritual experience. His message was that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of history, that he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the Savior from Satan's sin and death, and that he had shut the book on the old world of sin and death and shame, and that Jesus had accomplished accomplished redemption for all people so that whoever would come to him and, and repent and believe in him would be truly united to him forever. 
in this new creation. That's what Peter's preaching about at Pentecost. He's just preaching the gospel, inviting people to trust in Jesus as Lord, not inviting people to receive the Spirit so that they can do miracles. The presence of the Spirit among those united to Christ is important because it binds us to Christ in all the things to come forever in glory. And so, so, the, so this is primary even over the experientially miraculous and exciting things that the Spirit does among the people of God. So I'm not saying that the Spirit can't do miraculous things. I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't do awe-inspiring things. I'm just saying that's not the primary point that the Bible has for us about why God has given us the Spirit. A couple weeks ago, we talked about worship in the Sunday gathering and about how, how it's this expression and experience in the new creation, how we are, are participating in heaven when we come together. And that's because of what happened at Pentecost. It's because to be united to Christ is to have citizenship in heaven. So Jesus is in heaven, and the Holy Spirit is in us, and the Holy Spirit is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Holy Spirit. And so wherever Christ is, so there we are too. And wherever we are, there Christ is. And so we not only have representation in heaven as Jesus is ascended there, but though we live surrounded by the sorrows of this present evil age, as Paul calls it, we are also living in the heavenly reality through our union with Christ, who's died for our forgiveness, who's been raised for our redemption, and has ascended so that we might have, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's not a future thing, it's a present thing. Because we have the Spirit, which means we're united to Christ who has all the blessings in the heavenly places, which means that there's a, an existential way in which we're there with Him and we are participating with Him in those things. But at this point, you're probably saying in your head, all right, this sounds great. This sounds interesting. It sounds theologically sound, but if that's true, why does my experience feel so different than what you're describing? Right, I had feedback from multiple people after that sermon uh, about worship the other week, most of them parents with unruly toddlers. And the feedback was basically, I heard you telling me this was heaven, and my kids were screaming, I was exhausted, it felt a lot more like hell. And I got that. I didn't argue the point. I didn't want to rebuke this feedback because I get it, but I do want to engage with it. How do we reconcile that our personal experience doesn't always seem to match up with the reality that God's spirit is among us and in us and moving through us? Right? Like We can say this is heaven, but why doesn't it always feel like heaven? Because when we think about the problem, it, it can cause us to experience a lot of doubt. I, I don't feel the Spirit or, or, or like I'm united to Christ in heavenly blessing or, or, or I don't feel like I've been freed from sin in this present evil age. I, I keep sinning. I, I keep getting distracted. I keep finding myself grumpy and impatient and, and I don't feel very spiritual at all. And, and when I try to sing and read and pray my Bible, I just end up thinking about other things and the bills I have to pay and the emails I forgot to read. And so essentially, I, I feel like a normal person with normal 
challenges and I feel powerless, but you're telling me God is in me and that I should have joy and excitement? Where's the spirit in my life? Like, does anybody resonate with that? Am I doing something wrong? Am I not a Christian if I don't feel something different than what what I'm feeling? Is my pastor just making stuff up because it sounds flowery and optimistic and and it might make for a good sermon? Anybody want to just say amen? Yeah, that's the way I feel. Let's go back to John 14. John 14, Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But he goes on, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the gift of the Spirit serves a few purposes, according to Jesus. First, he comes to help us. He calls him the helper. But what has he come to help us with? With loving Christ and with obeying Christ. Remember, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the Holy Spirit is who allows for us to truly love Christ and who empowers us to truly obey Christ as he's given us the ability to truly love him. This is the gift that was given at Pentecost. So do you want to follow Jesus and keep his commandments? If you want that, that's the Spirit at work in you. So so the struggle I talked about in Romans 7, that frustrating sense of loving God and wanting to obey him, and yet struggling with sin and doubt and, and anxiety and depression, the Spirit actually allows us to navigate that with confidence and thankfulness and, and not with despair. So though we struggle with sin, we are bound to God through Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8 following that Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the Spirit is in us. The Spirit is in us. He has bound us to Christ such that we cannot be separated from the love of God. So though we, in a moment, feel like failures, in a moment we have crisis, in a moment we feel spiritual doubt, the love of Christ cannot be separated from us because God has bound us to him through the Spirit. The Spirit establishes covenant 
unity between the sinner and God on the merit of Jesus. And covenant is huge for us because covenant is based on promises and not based on experiences. See, we need to base our life on promises and not experiences. We need to base our faith on the promises God has given us, not our experiences of God, because those are fleeting. They're hard to discern. They're hard to trust. We never know exactly what they are, but we can know the promises of God. Paul's overall response to the feeling issue is not to have a better feeling. It's to be reminded of better promises. The truth is that the Spirit has come and he brings freedom so we can press on based on promises and truth even when we don't feel it. And from this implication, looking back to John 14, we see that the Holy Spirit is given so that we will know that we are God's children so that Christ will be with us. See, the disciples are are probably feeling a ton of anxiety because Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you. And they've built their whole life around Jesus being with them. And then Jesus comforts them and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. What good news. I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus says, instead, the Father and the Son will will love his people and make their home with us through the Spirit. He says, we will make our home with you. So we aren't sons of God simply because there's been this transaction of sorts with our sinful guilt being placed on Jesus and, and his merit being given to us through faith. It's more than that. Like that's there, but there's more than that. We're sons because God has sent the spirit of his son into us so that we're not just on paper sons, but we're real sons. We're real sons and daughters, real members of the household of God given citizenship in the heavenly places. But how do we experience this reality? How, how do we know that that's true? Jesus says that the key is peace. My peace I give to you. So, so not some overly miraculous euphoria. Though at times and in places, people may legitimately experience that. But in the simplicity of peace that settles in our hearts as we believe the promises of God. The, the simplicity of peace, of thinking, oh, I, there is forgiveness for me. The simplicity of peace in knowing, oh, there, there is hope in, in suffering for me. So the helper, the Holy Spirit, confirms that we aren't alone, that we don't have to be afraid because God is with us. And, and if God is with us and for us, who should stand against us? Let's skip ahead to John 16. Verses 8 through 15, Jesus says, and not all of 8 through 15, but Jesus says, and when he comes, referring to the Spirit, who is a he, not an it, he's a person, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So when he comes, he will convict the world. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus goes on, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but at whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, 
Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the experience of the gift of the Spirit is primarily rooted in our hearts and minds as the Spirit convicts us with truth so that we understand our sin, understand the righteousness of God, and understand that God is the judge and that he has judged those who are in him favorably. The Spirit is coming to do what, according to Jesus? To guide us into all the truth to speak to us the words of God himself. And so at Pentecost, the fullness of truth in God's word went forth in a way that it never had throughout all of history. So Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all, that, he was, that he's brought about this mighty day of the Lord for which the people had been waiting for centuries, and that all of history and creation find its fulfillment in the work of God in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes upon the church The Holy Spirit upon the church is made evident through what? Not through signs and wonders, but through the proclamation of the gospel. Through the truth of the scriptures, through the conviction of of what is true and honorable and, and worthy of praise, the Spirit has come so that the people of God might walk in the truth because Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. Not signs and wonders, the truth shall set you free. When we realize that the Spirit's job is to speak truth to us, then the proclamation of the word on Sunday morning, the encouragements you receive in the gospel at your parish gathering, the time you spend in the Bible in the morning before you go to work or or when you pray before you you go to sleep, all of these, you, you start to realize that all of these are radically graceful gifts of God made possible by the Spirit having been poured out on you individually and us collectively. What it means is that the word of God isn't boring or archaic. It is the spirit-filled and spirit-inspired and spirit-spoken truth of the new creation. Though old truths have died, the truth of God's word remains forever. So wherever the word of God is read and taught, wherever God's people are seeking the truth in humility under the lordship of Jesus, there is a spirit-filled church and a spirit-led congregation. This right here, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. God's people who have come together to pursue the love of Christ, which manifests in the obedience to Christ, which is informed by the truth about Christ, that's the Pentecostal gift, Sojourn Montrose. And so as we consider the more personal experience with the Spirit in our lives, as we pursue the spiritual gifts in our lives, this is the lens through which we ought to do that, that that God has given His Spirit to His church so that they might be truly His children, marked by His love, obedient to His Word, and so that all that the Spirit does is confirm the truth about Christ and conform God's people into the image of Christ. And so, yes, pray for the spiritual gifts. Please pray for them. Pray that all of us would, but not so that you can have an experience. Not so that your life will be enriched by signs and wonders. Pray for them so that the truth about Christ might shine forth through your life for the benefit of others who need the grace of God to be made clear to them. This is what Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So the fruit of the Spirit for all time and for all people cannot be rightly judged by marvelous signs and wonders that we've come to associate with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the people of God conformed to the image of God, which comes out in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's hard to say that without singing a song. To keep in step with the Spirit is to live a life united to Christ by love for Christ, faith in Christ, obedience to Christ, so that our lives begin to look like Christ. So when you are patient, there, that's the Spirit. When you have any amount of love for your neighbor, that's the Spirit at work in you. When you forgive There's the Spirit. When you have any self-control, you resist a desire. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you and in us. The age to come is here. God is among us. It is an age of eternal love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So on this Pentecost Sunday, let's thank God for the Spirit and seek the fruit of the Spirit as we feast on the redemption that's been accomplished for us by Christ and which is applied to us by the Spirit. Let's pray.